I have a friend who's an artist and has sometimes taken a view which I don't agree with very well. He'll hold up a flower and say, look how beautiful it is. And I'll agree, I think. And he says, you see, as I as an artist can see how beautiful this is. But you as a scientist, oh, take this all apart and it becomes a dull thing. And I think that he's kind of nutty. First of all, the beauty that he sees is available to other people and to me too. I believe, although I may not be quite as refined as aesthetically as he is, that I can appreciate the beauty of a flower. At the same time, I see much more about the flower than he sees. I could imagine the cells in there, the complicated actions inside, which also have a beauty. I mean, it's not just beauty at this dimension of one centimeter, there's also beauty at a smaller dimension. The inner structure, also the processes, the fact that the colors and the flower evolved in order to attract insects to pollinate it, is interesting. It means that insects can see the color. It adds a question. Does this aesthetic sense also exist in the lower forms? That are, does it, why is it aesthetic? All kinds of interesting questions which the science knowledge only adds to the excitement, the mystery, and the awe of a flower. It only adds. I don't understand how it subtracts. Podcast, episode 33, chapter 14 of The Beginning of Infinity, titled, Why Are Flowers Beautiful? Now, that's just your opinion that flowers are beautiful, so they're not in any objective sense. Um, that was a quick episode, so look forward to next week for the evolution of culture. <laughs> of course, that would be ridiculous. Um, it's so easy, it's such a general purpose objection to say, well, it's just your opinion that that movie was a bad movie. It's just your opinion that Justin Bieber is a bad singer. It's just your opinion that Mozart is a better composer than someone else. It's one of those arguments that everyone knows. This idea that in art or music or movies or fiction, there's no objective standards and that everyone just has their opinion. It's merely a matter of taste. And so we're never going to converge on what is actually good when it comes to art. Well, we're going to explore that today. We're going to explore that through the lens of why flowers are beautiful. And when we say beautiful, we're going to come to understand that what this means, at least in part, is attractiveness. So I began this episode with a short clip from Richard Feynman, well, where he tells the story about a proverbial friend who comes to him and complains about physicists and says, you physicists, you like to deconstruct things. That's just denuding the beauty of nature by explaining it. And of course, Feynman's response is, that's completely wrong. It doesn't ruin anything by explaining it. In fact, it enhances it. The beauty of the rainbow is available to the physicist, just as it is to anyone else. That kind of beauty, that kind of visual beauty. But there's a deeper beauty as well. There's a beauty of the theory itself, which explains why the rainbow happens. And there's the beauty of the feeling of understanding, of comprehending what's actually going on there. These simple laws acting on simple objects in the universe to cause marvelous effects, taking white light and splitting it into all the colors of the rainbow. That's a beautiful thing to understand. And that's a kind of beauty not available to someone who doesn't understand the physics. So a physicist isn't removing beauty or removing beauty by explaining something. And I think Feynman's point when he talks about 
is that people should want to try to understand things like that, to understand physics to the extent that they're interested in it, because it is a kind of beauty, it is a way of appreciating the world that otherwise wouldn't be available to you. It's similar to the criticism that some people trained in the classics or trained in the arts make of people trained in the sciences, possibly rightly, that if you don't understand Shakespeare, you don't understand some of the great works, if you don't haven't read the classic philosophers, then you are missing something of the beauty of reality, the reality that has been created by people, of course. Indeed, uh, at least uh, in years gone by, not so much today, in fact, it's the other way around, but in years gone by, it was said that even if you were well-trained in science and mathematics, you were nonetheless uneducated if you didn't read if you didn't read the classics if you didn't have a good understanding of Shakespeare and Homer and the humanities let's say and it used to be rarely said in the other direction you know uh, if you didn't understand Shakespeare then you were regarded as uneducated but if you didn't understand the second th law of thermodynamics but nonetheless you had a Bachelor of Arts degree you were still educated there was no sin in not understanding the, the second law of thermodynamics let's say but now, of course, we've got the problem of the pendulum swinging in the other direction. I think this pendulum that does swing in either direction is, is, is misconceived. But today, of course, there's a lot of accusations made of people, at least on social media anyway, accusations made from one person to another that so-and-so is scientifically ignorant. Now, of course, it might be true. All of us are ignorant to some extent, but to claim that it's a sin or that you have no right to speak on a certain topic because you are ignorant of that topic, that is completely misconceived. It's no sin to be ignorant. Ignorance is the common state of humanity. We are all infinitely ignorant, as Popper has taught us. What perhaps is a sin, what perhaps is a sin, is claiming to have knowledge that you do not have, of course that can be wrong, or refusing to learn anything further once you think you know something, whether that's in the realm of the arts or the humanities or in science. Okay, but that discussion's taking us a little bit far away from the point of the chapter. A good supplement to this video, not only is the book, of course, but also David Deutsch has a, an excellent talk that he gave to the Museum of Modern Art, and that's available on YouTube. I'll link to that as well. Or you can just type in David Deutsch flowers into the, the YouTube search bar and it'll bring that up. Now, all of that said, let's get into chapter 14, Why Are Flowers Beautiful? And it begins with a quote from Richard Dawkins writing in his book, Climbing Mountain Probable, which was written in 1996, published in 1996. And Dawkins wrote, My daughter Juliet, then aged six, pointed out some flowers by the wayside. I asked her what she thought wildflowers were for. She gave a rather thoughtful answer. Two things, she said, to make the world pretty and to help the bees make honey for us. I was touched by this and sorry I had to tell her that it wasn't true. End quote. And then David goes on for another quote. Displace one note and there would be diminishment. Displace one phrase and the structure would fall. That is how Mozart's music is described in Peter Schaeffer's 1979 play Armadeus. Should also uh, just pause there, my uh, interjection here. Um, there's also a movie based upon that play of the same name, Armadeus. Uh, the movie was made in 1984. It got 11 Academy Award nominations. It won Best Picture for that year. Um, it's burned into my mind because uh, I was brought up in the Star Wars generation, which is around this same era. And like many people who were brought up in the Star Wars generation, at least many young boys anyway, we watched the movie so often we could recite the words off by heart. The only other movie I think that 
I'm able to still recite most of the words off by heart to would be Amadeus. It's one of the movies that I really enjoyed as a kid. I don't really know why. I think my grandmother had me watch it at some point and then I just fell in love with the music as well as the story. But the music was so wonderful and that led me into an appreciation of classical music, uh, which was rather an odd thing for a young boy, um, at least where I was from anyway. Um, and so, yeah, I never learnt to play classical music. I am not musically inclined in any way, shape or form, but I certainly appreciate classical music. Okay, let's get back to the book, enough about me. So David has just said, um, displace one note and there would be diminishment, displace one phrase and the structure would fall. This is reminiscent of the remark made by John Archibald Wheeler with which this book begins, speaking of a hoped for unified theory of fundamental physics. An idea so simple, so beautiful, that when we grasp it, how could it have been otherwise? Schaefer and Wheeler were describing the same attribute, being hard to vary while still doing the job. In the first case, it is an attribute of aesthetically good music, and in the second, of good scientific explanations. And Wheeler speaks of the scientific theory as being beautiful, in the same breath as describing it as hard to vary. Scientific theories are hard to vary because they correspond closely with an objective truth which is independent of our culture, our personal preferences, and our biological makeup. But what made Peter Schaffer think that Mozart's music is hard to vary? The prevailing view among both artists and non-artists is, I think, that there is nothing objective about artistic standards. Beauty, says the adage, is in the eye of the beholder. The very phrase, it's a matter of taste, is used interchangeably with, there is no objective truth of the matter. Artistic standards are, in this view, nothing more than artefacts of fashion and other cultural accidents, or of individual whim, or of biological predisposition. Many are willing to concede that in science and mathematics, one idea can be objectively truer than another, though, as we have seen, some deny even that. But most insist there is no such thing as one object being objectively more beautiful than another. Mathematics has its proofs, so the argument goes, and science has its experimental tests. But if you choose to believe that Mozart was an inept and cacophonous composer, then neither logic nor experiment nor anything else objective will ever contradict you. Okay, pause there, skipping over the next bit, um, where David compares that objection to empiricism. And also, he begins to introduce the idea, and although we may not able, be able to yet, or perhaps even at any time in the near future, be able to use science to objectively show or prove or provide evidence that a particular piece of art is objectively better than another piece of art, this does not mean there's no objectivity to it because facts can nonetheless be brought to bear to criticise aesthetic theories. He says facts can be used to criticise aesthetic theories as they can moral theories. But I'm skipping all of that, um, and I will pick it up where David says, Just as Bronowski pointed out that scientific discovery depends upon a commitment to certain moral values, might it not also entail the appreciation of certain forms of beauty? It is a fact, often mentioned but seldom explained, that deep truth is often beautiful. Mathematicians and theoretical scientists call this form of beauty elegance. Elegance is the beauty in explanations. It is by no means synonymous with how good or how true an explanation is. The poet John Keats' assertion, which I think was ironic, that beauty is truth, truth beauty, is refuted by what the evolutionist Thomas Huxley called the great tragedy of science the slaying of a beautiful hypothesis by an ugly fact, which is so constantly being enacted under the eyes of philosophers. 
by philosophers, he meant scientists. I think Huxley too was being ironic in calling this process a great tragedy, especially since he was referring to the refutation of spontaneous generation theories. But it is true that some important mathematical proofs and some scientific theories are far from elegant. Yet the truth so often is elegant that elegance is, at least, a useful heuristic when searching for fundamental truths. And when a beautiful hypothesis is slain, it is more often than not replaced, as the spontaneous generation theory was, by a more beautiful one. Surely this is not coincidence, it is a regularity in nature, so it must have an explanation. Okay, pause there my very brief reflection. So we've got the idea here of beauty in science and mathematics, beauty of a theorem being a useful heuristic, a useful rule, a useful guide in order to point us in the right direction as to what we're looking for when it comes to truth. Now, that's one aspect of this. The other aspect is the fact that that is routinely what we find in science and mathematics, that more often than not, regularly, we find that elegance is a guide to the truth, is itself in need of an explanation. Why should that be so? Okay, and then David begins to talk about a comparison between creation in art and creation in science. And, and the important point in this paragraph that I'm just skipping through is that both the scientist and the artist or the musical composer have waste paper baskets. What does that mean? Well, if you're a scientist and you're trying to find the answer to a particular question, a particular scientific question, or a mathematician trying to show some theorem, and you're making mistakes along the way, you're throwing out, discarding what you got wrong when you've detected your errors. What does a musical composer do? If it's all mere creativity, uncoupled from criticism, uncoupled from comparisons to some objective standard, to a reality that's out there in some way, then there shouldn't be any need for the waste paper basket because you're not comparing it to any objective criteria. But there must be an objective criteria because not only does the music meet your standards, but it meets the standards of many other people as well. So the composer is not merely creating in some unhinged way but they are creating within the scope of certain criteria, certain objective criteria for beauty within the area of music. And so when they make errors in that, that gets discarded in the waste paper basket. So this is the significance of the waste paper basket within both science and art. It is a metaphor for the fact that you can make errors. It's possible to be wrong in both domains. And being wrong is objective. <laughs> you're either wrong or you're not. And David goes on to write, quote, Composers like Ludwig van Beethoven agonized through change after change, apparently seeking something that they knew was there to be created, apparently meeting a standard that could be met only after much creative effort and much failure. Scientists often do the same. In both science and art, there are the exceptional creators like Mozart or the mathematician Srinivasa Ramanujan, who reputedly made brilliant contributions without any such effort. But from what we know of knowledge creation, we have to conclude that in such cases, the effort and the mistakes did happen, invisibly, inside their brains. Pause there, my reflection. Such an important point. There is a mystique about mathematicians, certainly. And when it comes to these phenomenal mathematicians, like Ramanujan is one of the most famous mathematicians, even among mathematicians, there is this mystique about how exactly they're doing what they're doing. Not only is there this mystique among the general community about mathematicians, because the overwhelming majority of people are not particularly knowledgeable about mathematics, and I include myself in this category, even though I did university level mathematics, 
uh, I look at the overwhelming majority of mathematics at the university level and I don't have a, don't have a clue about what's going on really. So mathematics has this mystique in the community, but beyond that, when you get into particularly excellent mathematicians, there is a further layer or level of mystery when it comes to these people, as if they have some access to divinely inspired truth. And it's almost, it's, it's very similar in many ways to the way people used to think of religious leaders, as if, for example, um, the Pope had a direct line somehow to God or merely priest did. You still hear people talk this way today about the Dalai Lama, um, and you know, many people claim that there is just something about him that is different to everyone else, and it might very well be true. That might be the case. But it's not like it is something truly mystical or supernatural, or something that can't be understood if you merely apply yourself to try and understand that. Same is true of mathematics. Now, Ramanujan is held up often as the exception to this rule of being able to understand if only you tried hard enough. He's supposedly someone who simply was able to write down theorems without proof. Um, now, there's an excellent book by Hardy, A Mathematician's Apology, uh, very much worth reading. And it's about Hardy and Ramanujan. Ramanujan was from India. He was brought by Hardy to England. Ramanujan did not live long in England, unfortunately. He, he, he only lived a few years. He got sick. Uh, he died very young, very sad. And there's a, there's a movie based upon this book uh, as well. Um, well there's, a, there's, there's a book based upon that account called The Man Who Knew Infinity, and then there was a movie made as well. So The Man Who Knew Infinity is worth looking up on Netflix or wherever you can find it. The thing is about Ramanujan, nonetheless, if you look into the details, he was absolutely certainly fallible, even when it came to mathematics and even when it came to the theorems that he wrote down. Yes, the majority of them, when he wrote them down, it seemed to be the case that they were true. He just couldn't provide the proof for them. Other mathematicians were able to provide the proof. Ramanujan had to learn how to do proofs himself. And that was what Hardy was doing. Hardy was trying to teach him the way that mathematicians was done, that mathematics was done by the mathematical community. But the reverse didn't appear to happen. It wasn't like Ramanujan was able to teach Hardy how he was doing what he was doing. Nonetheless, I'm sure it could be learnt. It's just that we don't know how to learn these things. Just like many people don't know how to learn mathematics full stop. The way in which Ramanujan did mathematics, it must have been done in his mind somehow. We know it had to be conjecture and refutation. That's the only way that knowledge is made, is created. But precisely what the method was, because it wasn't a standard method of proof, was for him not able to be explained to anyone else. So in other words, it was inexplicit knowledge that he had. In this, it's probably similar to, it could be compared to, the way in which a great tennis player is able to play tennis, the way in which Roger Federer is, nine times out of ten, able to serve the ball at very high velocity right into the place where he wants it to go. Um, but he can't explain it. He can try, he can try to explain it, he can try and put words together, but that's not going to convey exactly how to do what he does. Same, tr same is true probably of Ramanujan. Um, and, and you can you can look up the fact that yes, some of the theorems that Ramanujan wrote down turned out could be um, turned out weren't true. Okay, you could you could prove that they weren't true. In fact, so he was making mistakes. So even this method available to him, whatever it was, um, itself was of course fallible. Okay, so the only reason I'm uh, emphasising this is because I, there is something different about the way in which Ramanujan was going about doing what he did. 
but it wasn't like it was something some it's not like Ramanujan is proof positive that mathematics is this domain of certain truth and you can tap into that domain of certain truth you can't tap into the domain of certain truth you can conjecture what it's like if that's called tapping in but what you're actually doing is you're trying to explain that realm that area of that area of necessary truth so Ramanujan had some way of conjecturing what the necessary truth was without actually going through the proof to get there first. So there must be some process. Um, we just don't know what that it is yet. No doubt one day we will know exactly what he was doing um, and we'll be able to teach other people how to do that. And it might be a more efficient way of doing mathematics than what is presently done, which is starting from the axioms, going through the rules of inference and getting to the conclusion, which you call your theorem or using computers or whatever else. Okay, after that lengthy diversion, uh, let's go back to the book and David writes, are these resemblances only superficial? By the way, the resemblances he's talking about is this search for truth and this discarding of errors between science and the arts and mathematics indeed. Are these resemblances only superficial? Was Beethoven fooling himself when he thought that the sheets in his waste paper basket contained mistakes? That they were worse than the sheets he would eventually publish? Was he merely meeting the arbitrary standards of his culture, like the 20th century women who carefully adjusted their hemlines each year to conform to the latest fashions? Or is there a real meaning in saying that the music of Beethoven and Mozart was far above that of their Stone Age ancestors banging mammoth bones together, as Romanogen's mathematics was above tally marks? Okay, pause there. Me again with a little interjection. Um, so at this point, this is the point where people object with a challenge. You can't tell who's objectively better. Cardi B, Madonna, ACDC, your favourite K-pop girl group. And because you cannot objectively say which one's better, this is supposed to be a refutation of that entire philosophy, this entire idea that there is any objectivity to the arts. And in fact, this often happens with aspects of the philosophy of David Deutsch. That a problem is not soluble right now, or rather that a problem does not have a solution right now, a solution that we don't have a solution for a particular problem, that this somehow entails there can be no such solution, or that the problem is inherently unsoluble. This is wrong. The idea that problems are soluble, the idea that there is an objectivity to the arts, does not entail that we know what all those criteria are, that we have a solution to what the objective criteria are for the arts right now. So there may be a way of ranking these singers, let's say, or these bands, but just because we can't do it now, it does not mean there is no objectivity to this at all. And as we will come to see, there could be, there must be, a subjective component as well. But we could rank order them in terms of the objective standards. If only we knew what the objective standards were. We possibly are able to, if you're an expert in music, know some of the objective standards. I'm certainly not an expert in music, but no doubt a proper musician could probably write down something, something to do with uh, harmony, something to do with quality of singing by some criteria and so on. Because it certainly is the case that I cannot tell who did it better when it comes to these bands, the it being the music. We all have our opinions. Some will insist that all classical music always outclasses all pop music, and even pop music always outclasses rap music. But just because we do not know what the objective criteria is does not mean they do not exist. And as David rightly says just there, do you really think that some Stone Age people bashing rocks together cannot be distinguished from Vivaldi's concerto for two violins? 
Well, of course it can be. Of course there is an objective difference. It's not merely subjective. Everyone will agree, everyone will be able to tell the difference between Vivaldi and the rocks. Not merely in terms of they sound different, but one sounds better. One is something that you are attracted to and that you would prefer to keep returning to and listening to. If you were confined in a prison and they gave you uh, the alternative of either listening to these loudly bashed mammoth tusks together, bones or rocks or whatever, or you can listen to Vivaldi on a loop, I think most people would probably choose Vivaldi. So we know that there is this, we know already, there's an objective difference between noise, uh, disorganized type sound, uh, poor music and better music. It is a coarse-grained way of ranking things that we have at the moment. But that doesn't mean that it won't improve. Indeed, it will. We have a coarse-grained way of understanding biology and physics as well. It's more refined than what it is in the arts. But it's not to say in any of these domains it's perfect. And the point here is that in the arts, the arts being the most difficult, I guess, of the subjects in order to make the case here about realism, about the fact that there are objective criteria. Uh, it seems to be the case that people are quite willing to admit that there's an objective difference between what is true and false in mathematics, what is true and false in physics indeed. Then we start to get a bit wishy-washy, don't we, when it comes to morality, and some people think that it's merely subjective. And then sometimes even the people who think that morality might have an objective component, they will deny the fact that art can have any objective component. One of the reasons for this, and I guess we'll return to this idea, is that too many people have simply been trained at school that anything can be art. They've had that conversation. They've been taught that, well, Duchamp's toilet, um, or urinal rather, that that can be a work of art. So much of modern art is of a silly kind. Um, so we'll come back to modern art. Modern art being the equivalent of relativism or postmodernism in philosophy, a rejection of the idea of objective criteria for beauty or objective criteria for anything, and that art can indeed be anything at all. There's no truth of the matter. There's no better and worse. Anything can be art. Therefore, anyone can be an artist and anyone can claim that they've got the best art in the world, even if it's utter rubbish. In fact, I'll skip the part that David talks about next and go straight to where he says, quote, Quite generally, cultural relativism about art or morality has a very hard time explaining what people are doing when they think they are improving a tradition. Then there is the equivalent of instrumentalism. Is art no more than a means to non-artistic ends? For instance, artistic creations can deliver information. A painting can depict something, and a piece of music can represent an emotion. But their beauty is not primarily in that content. It is in the form. For instance, here is a boring picture. And here is another picture with much the same content, yet with greater aesthetic value. And of course, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you won't know what pictures I'm talking about. So I'd urge you to go to YouTube. <laughs> or to the book, of course, where those pictures are. One can see that someone thought about the second picture in its composition, framing, cropping, lighting, focus. It has the appearance of design by the photographer. But design for what? Unlike Paley's watch, it does not seem to have a function. It only seems to be more beautiful than the first picture. But what does that mean? Uh, just as an aside, um, Everyone's a photographer these days, aren't we? We've all got uh, smartphones and they all have astonishing cameras compared to anything of the past. They can do some amazing things, but nonetheless, um, we should all notice that photography, 
it turns out it's extremely difficult unless you're particularly talented or gifted in this. There's a lot of knowledge to learn. Um, there's much to understand. Uh, this idea of simply bringing things into focus, this idea of cropping, this idea of thirds and so on. Uh, once you take a deep dive into photography, it can be a, well, certainly a lifetime's worth of work. No, uh, people just don't understand what is involved in this. This is an art form. You know, I think that most people just think that I hold a camera and point it at stuff. But there is a heck of a lot more to it than just that. It's kind of strange that um, we all carry around this instrument with us all every single day, which is such a powerful artistic tool, but so few of us actually know how to use it. It's rather like we're all carrying around violins, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and playing them now and again. You know, none of us really can, uh, but we all think that we're photographers to some extent. And um, I know sometimes I do, and you know, we're going to see some of my photos today. I'm not a photographer, but I'm trying to improve. It's something I'm trying to learn. Uh, let's go back to the book and David writes, one possible instrumental purpose of beauty is attraction. A beautiful object can be attractive to people who appreciate the beauty. Attractiveness to a given audience can be functional and is a down-to-earth, scientifically measurable quantity. Art can be literally attractive in the sense of causing people to move towards it. Visitors to an art gallery can see a painting and be reluctant to leave, and then later be caused by the painting to return to it. People may travel great distances to hear a musical performance, and so on. If you see a work of art that you appreciate, that means that you want to dwell on it, to give it your attention, in order to appreciate more in it. If you are an artist, and halfway through creating a work of art, you see something in it that you want to bring out. Then you are being attracted by a beauty that you have not yet experienced. You are being attracted by the idea of a piece of art before you have created it. Not all attractiveness has anything to do with aesthetics. You lose your balance and fall off a log because we're all attracted to the planet Earth. That may seem merely a play on the word attraction. Our attraction's worth is due not to aesthetic appreciation, but to a law of physics, which affects artists no more than it does aardvarks. A red traffic light may induce us to stop and stare at it so long as it remains red, but that is not artistic appreciation either, even though it is attraction. It is mechanical. But when analysed in sufficient detail, everything is mechanical. The laws of physics are sovereign, so one can draw the conclusion that beauty cannot have an objective meaning other than that which we are attracted to by processes in our brains and hence by the law of physics. So. Can one draw the conclusion that beauty cannot have an objective meaning other than that which we are attracted to by processes in our brains and hence by the laws of physics? One cannot. Because by that argument, the physical world would not exist objectively either since the laws of physics also determine what a scientist or mathematician wants to call true. Okay, just emphasizing that last bit. The laws of physics also determine what a scientist or mathematician wants to call true. Okay, just my reflection on that bit. So on that account, that what I will say is the false account, uh, well, it's not false, it, it's true, but it's a bad explanation. Physics causes you to think what you think, in a sense. But it's not a good explanation to say, I'm thinking what I think, simply because the laws of physics are causing me to think what I think. So the, the, the question is for anyone who is a reductionist, is that anything you think is just an outworking of the laws of physics, including what you think is true or false about those laws of physics. 
that's hardly a good explanation. It's just a claim about the universality of physics. The laws apply everywhere and at all times, including to the contents of your own brain. But if you want to understand, not merely state a trope about the universal laws of physics, if you want to understand, understand, mind you, have a theory of, have an explanation about what is going on, in this case, what is going on with certain kinds of attractiveness, you have to move beyond mere physical law. Indeed, you have to move beyond physical laws for the vast majority of anything outside of the physical sciences. Skipping just a tiny little bit, and David writes back to the book, new art is unpredictable, like new scientific discoveries. Is that the unpredictability of randomness? or the deeper unknowability of knowledge creation. Uh, pause there. Sorry, I'm doing a lot of pausing today and <laughs> interjecting on my own stuff. So just a point on that randomness, and more on a side than anything else. I think it was Sabine Hoffenstadter, the physicist, who was the latest to get tangled up in these concerns about randomness or indeterminacy in quantum theory and the many worlds interpretation and, and so on. Um, Briefly, this is the idea that one way of going with quantum theory is to say that what happens next in any given experiment is simply random. And the reason that people put this case to say that, well, the laws of physics create inherent randomness in nature is because they cannot predict the outcome of the next experiment, unlike in classical physics where if you're dropping a ball from a certain height, you can predict precisely where it's going to land at any particular moment. However, if we're firing photons at a double-slit apparatus experiment, we cannot predict precisely where that photon is going to end up on the screen where the experiment is being projected. Okay, so to some extent it appears as though this experiment is indeterminate, but what does that mean? Well, it can't be the case that it means entirely random. If it was entirely random, if there was nothing governing this, there was nothing determining the outcome of this experiment, then whether the photon hits there or there on the screen is not random. It would be random if once you fire the photon from the apparatus, it metamorphosized into an elephant or disappeared entirely into thin air and it never hit the screen. Um, neither of these two are consistent with other known laws of physics, namely conservation of energy, which we should really regard as a principle. Uh, that other laws of physics have to conform to. But the point is that it's not random. You fire a photon and a photon ends up at the screen. So there's something there that is continuous. There's something there that's a regularity in nature. But there's more than, a reg more than that in terms of regularity in nature. There is a pattern that is built up over time. And the pattern is predictable. The pattern is the regularity in nature. So although we can't predict the exact place of any given photon, that is subjectively unknown to us. Nonetheless, in the objective sense, there is certainly a law of physics that determines what the pattern is going to be. And that's not indeterminate at all. It's not a random pattern. And that pattern has an explanation. And if you want to know more about these patterns in um, physics, the laws of physics that I'm talking about, then see the series on the multiverse or see David's chapter on the multiverse in the beginning of infinity. Now, the fact that you or I cannot determine the next place the photon lands, that's a fact about us. That's not a fact about the laws of nature. That's about us and our ignorance, that we can only see what's happening in one particular universe at any given time. And then that gets in 
to deep questions about the nature of personhood and the fact that we occupy one place. There's certain um, things that we don't understand, but we understand that much, that we occupy this particular universe and we don't have access to the other universes where the other photons are going. Okay, That's all objective. So our, our ignorance about where the next photon is going to land on the screen is a fact about us, but the fact about the universe is that the photons will, that single photon will take up all possible positions on the screen. And those possible positions are given by the relevant laws of physics. Because we don't occupy all universes, the only way to test this is to repeat the experiment over and over again and approximate what would have happened if you had a fire just one and been able to see where it went in all the other universes. Now, repeating the experiment over and over again just simply means that you're moving through time and time is a special case of the different universes. So subjective indeterminacy by which I mean human ignorance, the fact that we do not know precisely what happens next, is no proof of objective indeterminacy, the claim that nothing determines the position where the next photon will go. But something does determine it. The laws do. If there were no laws, then we could expect a photon to vanish utterly into thin air or to turn into a man riding a bicycle or something. But those things don't happen. It's not utterly random because there are laws to be obeyed here. There are quantum laws of physics to obey here. So that's that this, this idea that um, David mentions there just in passing of the unpredictability of randomness is the unpredictability of subjective randomness. Things are only subjective random. They appear to be random to us because we don't have knowledge of the situation, uh, of everything that we need to know in order to make the prediction. And, and indeed, so far as we know, it's impossible for us to make a prediction uh, of that kind about where the photon is going to land, let's say. But there's also another kind of unpredictability, which is to do with the unknowability, as David says there, of knowledge creation. And continuing, David says, quote, In other words, is art truly creative like science and mathematics? That question is usually asked the other way around because the idea of creativity is still rather confused by various misconceptions. Empiricism miscasts science as an automatic non-creative process. And art, though acknowledged as creative, has often been seen as the antithesis of science and hence irrational, random, inexplicable, and hence unjudgeable and non-objective. But if beauty is objective, then a new work of art, like a newly discovered law of nature or mathematical theorem, adds something irreducibly new to the world. Pause there, my reflection. So another confusion brought to you by your local high school, I would say. We're taught this more or less, aren't we? Well, at least it used to be the case. I was taught this, uh, at, least, at least implicitly. Art is where you do creative stuff and science is where you simply learn about reality and you've got no choice in the matter. I should say there's been at least some kind of renaissance in science teaching. And now at least, at least lip service is paid to the idea that in mathematics and in science there can be creativity. However, the actual teaching of mathematics and science in schools, especially mathematics, is still very much rote learning. Um, you go through and do exercises, um, which is the appropriate word for what's going on there. Uh, nevertheless, culture is still satisfied with the idea that art's creative, and science is just an uncreative reporting of what reality is like. But that latter view is the misconception of empiricism, of course. It casts the scientist as a reader of nature, rather than the creator of explanations. Of course, it's not 
it's not unrestrained creativity. Creativity without any constraint is nonsense and non-art. There are criticisms to be made. Creativity and criticism together make the theory closer to true or in art more beautiful. As David observes, the waste paper basket of the composer fills up over time as they criticize their creativity and refine it in line with some criteria of beauty or harmony. If you have only criticisms and no creativity, then you end up making no progress at all because you just say that everything is bad uh, or worse than what you currently have. And if you have creativity unencumbered by criticism, then you produce poor quality or you regress. So this idea of creativity and criticism together is very important. And I would say that criticisms, when done properly, typically have a large creative element to them as well. You can invent new ways of criticizing things. You can improve the ways in which you criticize something. Um, so even criticism is a creative act to a large extent too. Okay, skipping a little, David writes, art does not consist of repetition, but in human taste, there can be genuine novelty. Because we are universal explainers, we are not simply obeying our genes. For instance, humans often act in ways that are contrary to any preferences that might plausibly have been built into our genes. People fast, sometimes for aesthetic reasons. Some abstain from sex. People act in very diverse ways for religious reasons or for any number of other reasons, philosophical or scientific, practical or whimsical. We have an inborn aversion to heights and to falling, yet people go skydiving. Not in spite of this feeling, but because of it. It is that very feeling of inborn aversion that humans can reinterpret into a larger picture, which to them is attractive. They want more of it. They want to appreciate it more deeply. To a skydiver, the vista from which we were born to recoil is beautiful. The whole activity of skydiving is beautiful. And the part of that beauty is in the very sensations that evolved to deter us from trying it. The conclusion is inescapable. That attraction is not inborn, just as the contents of a newly discovered law of physics or mathematical theorem are not inborn. Pause there. My reflection on this. This is a perfect refutation, or at least criticism, very strong criticism, of the evolutionary psychologists. Evolutionary psychologists suggest, or state strongly, that our behavior, or at least some of our behaviors, are determined, or at least partially determined, by our genes. Now, it's no doubt the case that there are inborn ideas that we have, and no doubt the case that Genetics can provide some mental content. This is all true. But none of that is to say that it needs to determine particular behavior. And by determine, I mean unavoidably, unchangeably, you will be inevitably forced into that particular behavior because you've got a gene for that particular behavior, let's say. I don't think there is any gene for a particular kind of behavior. There might be a gene for a particular sensation. Some people might experience pain more than others. They have genes for higher levels of pain. Certainly some people can taste different things. We, we certainly know that females have genes for detecting greater shades of red than what males do in humans. Um, men typically have better night vision than what women do. These are genetic differences, but none of this is to say that we are compelled into certain kinds of behavior. That just because women have a better ability to appreciate the color red, they can see more of it, more shades of it, 
that therefore they're going to be drawn into the arts or the visual arts more than what men are. That it is determined that you are forever closed off from being a visual artist because you're a man. That's clearly not the case. Now, this idea here, that if you're going to be, if anything's going to be determined, one would think, then it is the fear of heights that um, many people have, the fear of falling from a great height. So, you know, it might, might be the case that there is this gene for, or this genetic component to what many people experience as fear of heights, reasonable fear of heights. You shouldn't want to get too close to the cliff because you might fall off. So the genes want to preserve themselves, so they may give this sensation, which causes an idea in the mind of moving away from high places. Now, the evolutionary psychologist may wish to say, well, that's all genetically determined. There we go. It's proof that there is a gene or at least some genetic component to fear of heights and quite rightly a fear of heights. Okay. Then explain how it is that people who skydive do not have such a fear of heights. Or if they do, whatever this fear is, this word fear, has been replaced or changed to such an extent that it now becomes enjoyable, thrilling. Is it the same sensation? Don't know. I imagine it's not quite the same sensation because I know of people who are so terrified of heights that they literally collapse far away from the cliff edge, that if they're on a bridge, they can't get across the bridge. They're so afraid of it. They appear to be in actual physical pain, certainly in mental anguish. But on the other hand, we have these other people who are willing to go up far higher than that and jump from perfectly functioning aircraft. Not something I'd do. But um, it, it seems that if there's genes for this sensation, then this sensation can be reinterpreted by the mind. It depends on what you know about what's going on. Some people who have been afraid of heights become skydivers. They can reinterpret it. Is it the same sensation? I doubt it. Fear of water is another one. Um, people who've never learned to swim may very well fear the ocean and rightly fear the ocean. Others have no such fear. So is the fear of the water or fear of the ocean something that's inborn? Or is it as you, you can be trained into this fear or out of this fear as a child? Um, and depending upon what you learn as a child determines what uh, you feel as an adult. But even then, it's not completely fixed. You can change your ideas. As I keep on saying, humans have ideas. They're not defined by them. And so you can change any particular idea you have. I think one of David's other examples is, of course, that if we have a gene for anything in common with all other life forms, it's this drive to survive, this no matter what, we will try to eat, drink, breathe air. Uh, we will do the things that is required in order for us to survive. It's the first thing in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, okay? All of those things that we need to survive, we're going to prioritize. So surely that's genetic. If anything's genetic, it is this will to survive, this will to live. And yet, we're not completely alone amongst all species in, in doing this, but so many people commit suicide. Some people become suicide bombers. Some people just simply die every day of suicide. It's terrible. It's sad. But their deaths, sadly, are a refutation of this idea that we have this genetically determined kind of behavior. If any behavior was going to be genetically determined, then surely 
It would be the behavior of trying to survive. Yet so many people every single day kill themselves. Now, the evolutionary psychologist might say at this point, well, you know, they might have a defect in that gene or in those sets of genes. And that causes them to kill themselves. Well, at this point, then what you're saying is that no matter what the behavior is, there's a genetic component to it. And so therefore, it's an explanation that explains everything. It is a general purpose explanation that no matter what the behavior is, it can always be explained by recourse to the genes. In other words, there is no way of refuting it. It's not scientific. Now, on our side of the ledger, we're not denying that it's possible that some kinds of behavior can be influenced by the genes? Absolutely. You know, of course, simple examples are, some people have certain, I think this has been tested, I'm not sure. Um, I think it's been tested that some people have genes for liking the taste of asparagus because they can actually smell it. And some people cannot smell asparagus. Or there's certain other kinds of foods. Some people can taste this kind of food because they have the genes for that kind of smell or that kind of odor and so they're attracted towards those foods and some people do not have such genes and in that case of course there's a genetic component to whether or not you like the particular food because you have particularly sensitive salt receptors or bitter receptors so you prefer this kind of food and you don't prefer this kind of food that makes perfect sense there's genes for certain kinds of mental illness let's say and that causes certain behaviors so we're not denying the fact that there can be genes implicated in the explanation of certain kinds of behavior. But what we are saying is that whatever those behaviors are, they can be themselves reinterpreted by the universal mind, by the explainer, by the person who may not like the fact that they're attracted to this, that or the other thing, or they have this so-called mental illness and they want to change their behaviors. If they learn better, then whatever that genetic influence is can be reinterpreted. In the same way that the skydiver, who may very well have started out with a terrible fear of heights, has now reinterpreted that sensation that's coming to them via some genetic impulse that has caused certain sensations in their body to be reinterpreted and changed so that their behavior utterly changes, ultimately. That even if they have this sensation of whatever it is, this, this fear when they go near to um, a high place that it can be reinterpreted to be something they really love and become attracted to. So they can turn something that is a, initially a repulsion into an attraction. Um, now, the gene, the gene theory surely can't explain that. Unless, of course, you're willing to go down the road of saying they were never actually afraid of it in the first place. I don't know. Anyway, I'm waxing lyrical about that. I'd better get back to reading the book. David's talking about... Um, could art be purely cultural? So moving on from there. Quote, We pursue beauty as well as truth, and in both cases we can be fooled. Perhaps we see a face as beautiful because it really is, or perhaps it is only because of a combination of our genes and culture. A beetle is attracted to another beetle that you and I may see as hideous, but not if you are an entomologist. People can learn to see many things as beautiful or ugly, but there again... People can also learn to see false scientific theories as true, and true ones as false. Yet there is such a thing as objective scientific truth. So that still does not tell us whether there is such a thing as objective beauty. Just pause there, my reflection, just very quickly. In David's video on his own YouTube channel about why a flower is beautiful, which is an extension of this chapter, basically, there is the question is asked, well, you know, 
basically the question is about the fact that w there is no agreement on what beautiful art is or even on what beautiful flowers are. You know, in the, I think the fellow says, on the spectrum of all flowers, not everyone will agree. But David quite rightly responds to that with, well, not everyone agrees on scientific truth either. The mere fact, consensus is not the way in which we assess objective truth, whether that's in science or art. So just because we don't have universal consensus, unanimity on any scientific theory, has no effect upon the truth of the scientific theory or otherwise. The overwhelming majority of people on the face of planet Earth right now do not understand and typically reject the theory of evolution by natural selection. Most people remain religious believers. They believe that God created all the life on the face of the planet. They don't believe that we evolved from simpler life forms. They don't understand that we evolved from similar life forms. But the fact we don't have consensus on that has no bearing on whether or not that theory is true. The same is true of the theory of climate change. It has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that many people disagree with it as to whether it's true or not. Science continues to make progress nonetheless. The vast majority of people do not understand the theory of gravity, Einstein's general theory of relativity. But we still make GPS satellites work. We still use the theory for practical applications. So too with art. You know, if, Just because we do not understand or uh, can come to some... We do not understand what the criteria is and hence do not have a consensus on what the best kind of music is, does not mean there won't be in the future some criteria which we'll be able to agree upon that will enable us to uh, assess or improve um, music, let's say. Okay, now moving into the, uh, I guess, the central question of the chapter. And David has this picture. And he says, quote, Now, why is a flower the shape that it is? Because the relevant genes evolve to make it attractive to insects. Why would they do this? Because when insects visit a flower, they are dusted with pollen, which they then deposit in other flowers of the same species, and so the genes in the DNA in that pollen are spread far and wide. This is the reproductive mechanism that flowering plants evolved, and which most still use today. Before there were insects, there were no flowers on Earth. But the mechanism could work only because insects, at the same time, evolved genes that attracted them to flowers. Why did they? because flowers provide nectar, which is food. Just as there is co-evolution between the genes to coordinate mating behaviours in males and females of the same species, so genes for making flowers and giving them their shapes and colours co-evolved with genes in insects for recognising flowers with the best nectar. During that biological co-evolution, just as in the history of art, criteria evolved, and means of meeting those criteria co-evolved with them, that is what gave flowers the knowledge of how to attract insects, and insects the knowledge of how to recognise those flowers and the propensity to fly towards them. But what is surprising is that those same flowers also attract humans. This is so familiar a fact that it is hard to see how amazing it is. But think of all the countless hideous animals in nature and think of all of them who find their mates by sight have evolved to find that appearance attractive. And therefore it is not surprising that we do not. With predators and prey, there is a similar coevolution, but in a competitive sense rather than a cooperative one. Each has genes that evolve to enable it to recognise the other and to make it run towards or away from it respectively, while other genes evolved to make their organism hard to recognise against the relevant background. That is why tigers are striped. Occasionally it happens by chance that the parochial criteria of attractiveness that evolve within a species produce something that looks beautiful to us. The peacock's tail is an example, but that is a rare anomaly. 
In the overwhelming majority of species, we do not share any of their criteria for finding something attractive. Yet with flowers, most flowers, we do. Sometimes a leaf can be beautiful, even a puddle of water can, but again, only by rare chance. With flowers, it's reliable. It is another regularity in nature. What is the explanation? Why are flowers beautiful? Given the prevailing assumptions in the scientific community, which are still rather empiricist and reductionist, it may seem plausible that flowers are not objectively beautiful and that their attractiveness is merely a cultural phenomenon. But I think that fails closer inspection. We find flowers beautiful that we have never seen before and which have not been known to our culture before and quite reliably for most humans in most cultures. The same is not true of the roots of the plants or the leaves. Why only the flowers? One unusual aspect of the flower-insect coevolution is that it involved the creation of a complex code or language for signalling information between species. It had to be complex because the genes were facing a difficult communication problem. The code had to be, on the one hand, easily recognisable by the right insects, and on the other, difficult to forge by other species of flower. For if other species could cause their pollen to be spread by the same insects without having to manufacture nectar for them, which requires energy, they would have a selective advantage. So the criteria was that evolving in the insects had to be discriminating enough to pick the right flowers and not crude imitations. And the flower's design had to be such that no design that other flower species could easily evolve could be mistaken for it. Thus, both the criterion and the means of meeting it had to be hard to vary. Okay, just skipping a little bit. Uh, it talks about giraffes and why their necks are long. Um, uh, and we get into this idea a little more of signaling between these disparate species, between the flowers and the insects. How is it that, um, well, from one insect to another, there can be uh, different flowers that they are attracted to? I'll mention that a little bit later. Um, David writes, My guess is that the easiest way to signal across such a gap with hard-to-forge patterns designed to be recognised by hard-to-emulate pattern-matching algorithms is to use objective standards of beauty. So flowers have to create objective beauty and insects have to recognise objective beauty. Consequently, the only species that are attracted by flowers and are the insect species that co-evolved to do so and humans. Pause there, my reflection. But why humans? Because we can understand things. We can understand things. Now, with, with um, the insects, it's clearly only the genes. The genes are just finding that thing attractive. They're literally being drawn towards those flowers. And then they are pollinating the flowers as well. So it's, it's beneficial to the flowers. So this, this objectivity that exists out there in reality, this objective beauty that exists out there in reality, has been discovered by the uh, genetic code in the form of the flower to attract the insects. And us humans, being people, being able to understand the world, are able to uncover these objective features about reality, which includes objective beauty. Okay, back to the book, David writes. If true, this means that Dawkins' daughter was partly right about the flowers after all. They are there to make the world pretty, or at least prettiness is no accidental side effect, but is what they specifically evolved to have. Not because anything intended the world to be pretty, but because the best replicating genes depend upon embodying objective prettiness to get themselves replicated. The case of honey, for instance, is very different. The reason that honey, which is sugar water, is easy for flowers and bees to make and why its taste is attractive to humans and insects alike is that we do all have a shared genetic heritage, going back to our common ancestor and before, which includes 
biochemical knowledge about many uses of sugar and the means to recognize it. Okay, so just to emphasize that, me talking here, um, we share a common ancestor with insects. So it is no huge mystery as to why we should like honey because, well, honey contains nutrients and all these living organisms create, uh, uh, crave nutrients, require nutrients, and we recognize that the taste of honey, the sweetness of honey, that's attractive to us because we need it to survive, so it's no accident that, of course, it's in the genes. We share genes for this thing. But with flowers and us finding them attractive, well, there's no common set of genes going on here because if there was, then it should be the case that uh, all the species of apes and monkeys and so on that we share common ancestors with should also find flowers attractive or at least something lower down the phylogenic tree should also find flowers attractive, but nothing else does. It's just humans and the insects rather than cats and dogs. They're not attracted to flowers either. Okay, so this is, this is strange, unusual. It requires explanation. Uh, back to the book, David writes... Could it be that what humans find attractive in flowers or in art is indeed objective, but it is not objective beauty? Perhaps it is something more mundane, something like a liking for bright colours, strong contrasts, symmetrical shapes. Humans seem to have an inborn liking for symmetry. It is thought to be a factor in sexual attractiveness. And it may also be useful in helping us to classify things and to organise our environment physically and conceptually. So a side effect of these inborn preferences might be a liking for flowers, which happen to be colourful and symmetrical. However, some flowers are white, at least to us. They may have colours that we cannot see and insects can, but we still find their shapes beautiful. All flowers do contrast with their background in some sense. That is a precondition for being used for signalling. But a spider in the bath contrasts with its background even more, and there is no widespread consensus that such a sight is beautiful. As for symmetry, again, spiders are quite symmetrical, while some flowers, such as orchids, are very unsymmetrical. Yet we do not find them any less attractive for that, so I do not think that symmetry, colour and contrast are all that we are seeing in flowers when we imagine that we are seeing beauty. A sort of mirror image of that objection is that there are other things in nature that we also find beautiful, things that are not the results of either human creativity or co-evolution across a gap. The night sky, waterfalls, sunsets. So why not flowers too? But the cases are not alike. Those things may be attractive to look at, but they have no appearance of design. They are analogous not to Paley's watch, but to the sun as a timekeeper. One cannot explain why the watch is as it is without referring to timekeeping, because it would be useless for timekeeping if it had been made slightly differently. But as I mentioned, the sun would still be useful for keeping time, even if the solar system were altered. Similarly, Paley might have found a stone that looked attractive he might well have taken it home to use as an ornamental paperweight. But he would not have sat down to write a monograph about how changing any detail of the stone would have made it incapable of serving that function because that would not have been so. The same is true of the night sky, waterfalls, and almost all other natural phenomena. But flowers do have the appearance of design for beauty. If they looked like leaves or roots, they would lose their universal appeal, displace even one petal, and there would be diminishment. We know what the watch was designed for, but we do not know what beauty is. We are in a similar position to an archaeologist who finds inscriptions in an unknown language in an ancient tomb. They look like writing, and not just meaningless marks on the walls. Conceivably, this is mistaken, but they look as though they were inscribed there for a purpose. Flowers are like that. They have the appearance 
of having been evolved for a purpose which we call beauty, which we can imperfectly recognize, but whose nature is poorly understood. In the light of these arguments, I can see only one explanation for the phenomenon of flowers being attracted to humans and for the various other fragments of evidence I have mentioned. It is that the attribute we call beauty is of two kinds. One is a parochial kind of attractiveness, local to a species, to a culture, or to an individual. The other is unrelated to any of those. It is universal and as objective as the laws of physics. Creating either kind of beauty requires knowledge, but the second kind requires knowledge with universal reach. It reaches all the way from the flower genome, with its problem of competitive pollination, to human minds which appreciate the resulting flowers as art. Not great art. Human artists are far better, as is to be expected, but with the hard-to-fake appearance of design for beauty. So there David has talked about the parochial kind of attractiveness, local to a species, to a culture, or to an individual even. And this idea of local to an individual, let's say, is a subjective kind of beauty. And as I began this episode with, everyone can make that easy argument. We've all got different tastes, so it's subjective. But that's so easy. We already know that. We already know that there is this subjectivity to attractiveness. So yes, it's subjective, but it's also objective. There is an objective component. There's an objective kind of beauty. And this signaling across species is curious and requires explanation. Butterflies are attracted to red roses. Bees are not. And people find all kinds of flowers attractive. Beautiful. Now, back to the book, David writes. Now, why do humans appreciate that objective beauty if there has been no equivalent of that co-evolution in our past? At one level, the answer is simply that we are universal explainers and can create knowledge about anything. But still, why did we want to create aesthetic knowledge in particular? It is because we did face the same problem as the flowers and the insects. Signaling across the gap between two humans is analogous to signaling across the gap between two entire species. A human being, in terms of knowledge content and creative individuality, is like a species. All the individuals of any other species have virtually the same programming in their genes and use virtually the same criteria for acting and being attracted. Humans are quite unlike that. The amount of information in a human mind is more than that in the genome of any species and overwhelmingly more than the genetic information unique to one person. So human artists are trying to signal across the same scale of gap between humans as the flowers and insects are between species. They can use some species-specific criteria, but they can also reach towards objective beauty. Exactly the same is true of all other knowledge. We can communicate with other people by sending predetermined messages determined by our genes or culture, or we can invent something new. But in the latter case, to have any chance of communicating, we had better strive to rise above parochialism and seek universal truths. This may be the proximate reason that humans ever began to do so. Okay, so pause there my reflection and um, skipping apart, and David goes more into these two kinds of beauty. And so I just want to emphasize that again. We've got this subjective component to beauty, this subjective parochial kind of beauty. And on the other hand, we have this objective beauty as well. And no doubt in art, when it comes to visual art, no doubt this is what happens. And no doubt in music, this is what happens as well, that we have this coming together of the subjective and the objective component. And David talks about this, the, the, the pursuit of art for art's own sake, which he might call the pure kind of art versus an applied kind of art. So the applied kind is, you know, the art that serves a practical purpose. So it might, as he says, 
to give more cohesiveness to a culture or advance a political agenda or even to advertise beverages. So that would be an applied kind of art. But then there is also just pursuing art for art's sake, which is something that's done in mathematics as well. So it has this analog in mathematics. There's pure and there's applied mathematics. Pure mathematics done for uh, no other reason than someone just finds mathematics fascinating, interesting, and they want to solve problems in mathematics with no application to the physical world. By the way, even when mathematicians say that's what they're doing, Hardy, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote uh, the Mathematician's Apology, uh, who helped uh, Ramanujan come to um, Great Britain, um, he actually remarked that he was proud of the fact that very little of his own mathematics that he was doing would ever have any practical application. It turned out that it did later on, <laughs> if you read about G.H. Hardy. Okay, now when it comes to art, we're also talking about movies, we're talking about fiction, um, books, um, and David writes on this, quote, in fiction, there, as I mentioned in chapter 11, a good story has a good explanation of the fictional events that it portrays. But the same is true in all art forms. In some, it is especially hard to express in words the explanation of the beauty of a particular work of art, even if one knows it, because the relevant knowledge is itself not expressed in words. It is inexplicit. No one yet knows how to translate musical explanations into natural language. Yet when a piece of music has the attribute displace one note and there would be diminishment, there is an explanation. It was known to the composer and it is known to the listeners who appreciate it. One day it will be expressible in words. Okay, pause there my reflection. So this is um, a, a one of those points that can just blow by you um, if you're not paying attention. It's this idea that artists know that they're striving for something. Artists that are trying to do good, objectively beautiful art, trying to do objectively better music, they're communicating one from another. You know, the musician is aiming for this particular thing that is better than what has gone before, or at least better than what they've produced before. They're trying to create something new, bring something new and beautiful in the world. But they cannot always explain what's going on. They do not have an explicit explanation of exactly why the thing is more beautiful than the other alternatives that they could have made. Uh, they might have some ideas, but they won't be able to provide a comprehensive explanation such that having given it to someone else, that person can then learn how to do exactly what they've done. Okay, and then David goes through some reasons for art, the um, purposes of art. And so I'll just read um, the on the utilitarian theories of art. And David writes, there are utilitarian theories of the purpose of art. These theories deprecate pure art, just as pure science and mathematics are deprecated by the same arguments. But one has no choice about what constitutes an artistic improvement any more than one has a choice as to what is true and false in mathematics. And if one tries to tune one's scientific theories or philosophical positions to meet a political agenda or a personal preference, then one is at cross-purposes. Art can be used for many purposes, but artistic values are not subordinate to or derived from anything else. The same critique applies to the theory that art is self-expression. Expression is conveying something that is already there, while objective progress in art is about creating something new. Also, self-expression is about expressing something subjective, while pure art is objective. For the same reason, any kind of art that consists solely of spontaneous or mechanical acts, such as throwing paint onto canvas or of pickling sheep, lacks the means of making artistic progress. 
because real progress is difficult and involves many errors for every success. Pause there, my reflection. Yeah, just go to a museum of modern art um, and you will see this kind of thing. And I think throwing paint onto a canvas, that's pro-hard, isn't it, the artist? Um, oh, Mr. Hart, what a mess. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll, I'll find that advertisement. Beautiful, beautiful. Not a bad drop of red there. When Pro-Hart saw DuPont stained master carpet, he really took to it. What do you reckon, Rembrandt? <laughs> Fortunately... Stain Master is the only carpet with a five-year stain resistance guarantee. Oh, Mr. Hart, what a mess! Nearly finito. DuPont Stain Master, state-of-the-art in carpets. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to make progress with something like that. <clears throat> okay, back to the book. David writes, If I am right, then the future of art is as mind-boggling as the future of every other kind of knowledge. Art of the future can create unlimited increases in beauty. I can only speculate, but we can presumably expect new kinds of unification too. When we understand better what elegance really is, perhaps we shall find a new and better ways to seek truth using elegance or beauty. I guess that we shall also be able to design new senses and new qualia that can encompass beauty of new kinds, literally inconceivable to us now. What is it like to be a bat is a famous question asked by the philosopher Thomas Nagel. More precisely, what would it be like for a person to have the echolocation senses of a bat? Perhaps the full answer is that in the future, it will be not so much the task of philosophy to discover what that is like, but the task of technological art to give us the experience itself. End quote. End of the chapter. What a fantastic chapter. What a positive, optimistic, typical way <laughs> that David has left us there. Um, this idea that perhaps art can be a window into consciousness and qualia as well. That art, that artistic advances might be one of the ways that we can make philosophical advances on this particular front. Um, who knows? Um, and, and just that last paragraph there, it's, it's a real message to artists as well. Um, artists should take note of that note. In particular, don't run down your own subject. I'm no artist, but um, I have to defend art sometimes against artists. We want to say to some of the artists, at least, do not always be parochial. Do not always turn to try to turn your art into a vehicle for ever deconstructing what is true or good or known, taking a piece of good art that's already there and simply repurposing it and that becomes your art, or to convey political meanings, let's say, or some other deeper message. Sure, all of those things can be art and are done as art routinely these days. You know, we might even argue that some of them can be important functions of art. That's the utilitarian theory of art. But there's no reason for artists, art teachers, art students to denigrate or even deny that other aspect of art, the search for objective beauty and the creation of ever better, objectively ever better, kinds of art. New kinds of film, new ways of appealing to the senses that go beyond the two-dimensional, the three-dimensional, new and better music. And, and these kinds of art can have, as David says, reach, infinite reach, rather than Duchamp's toilet, which has no reach. It is... Art only in the sense that everything is art. And if everything and anything can be art, then art is meaningless. Almost every student of art seems to some extent be making the case of undermining their own area of expertise. 
if everything can be art, then as I say, everyone can be a great artist, as there is no distinction between the good and the terrible, and no standards by which to assess quality. But beauty, objective beauty is a quality we should want to learn far more about, so we can make the world more beautiful. But if we deny this, if it's all just a matter of opinion, how can we expect to solve problems of an ugly world? As always, thank you, and thank you to my Patreon supporters. Uh, if you'd like to contribute to Patreon, just search for me on Google and you'll find uh, Brett Hall Patreon or Topcast Patreon. And it's always much appreciated. Thank you. Bye-bye.